0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Kent Dobson here. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate your comments and questions and ideas and wonderings concerning the last podcast we made. I made a podcast with my wife, Mandy. We made one. Just about our kind of experience in Israel. We thought it's important to... Be in conversation with these with these really important world events right now, and and we we have you know we have our own experience living in this part of the world, so that's where we wanted to start, and um, just to try to be sincere and straightforward and and just kind of honest about about our own experience there, and and, and we want to make a part two to that, really based on so many good kind of questions and responses we got from people and and thanks for doing that thanks for taking the time and you know this podcast is called hints and guesses for a reason and that's what we hope we hope that you have your own hints and guesses and insights and musings and so forth and um yeah and special i i feel so much gratitude for my patreon supporters that that's been um such a surprise and and gift in my life to have that ongoing support. And as you know, like, um, or if you don't, I I had two Israel trips coming up here in 2024, and those just sort of evaporated overnight. They're on hold and for God knows how long. So your support is really um, important and and just want to thank you. And thank you on behalf of of my family and so, yeah, if you want to become a patron, patreon.com forward slash Kent Dobson. Every little bit uh, helps. And my website is the place to check out future offerings, which I'll be rolling out in the next month or so. What's go, what else is going on for me next year in terms of uh, programs and opportunities and intensives and retreats and things like that. So um, feel free to follow along. Um yeah what 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 else do I want to say here I think I want to say that part 2 is going to be hopefully a little more in-depth conversation about just from our point of view and and we've been having this dialogue back and forth and it's it's um my wife and I and and also with with our friends our friends over there and so We just kind of wanted to to have that in in a live way and and it is a conversation and you might find bits and pieces that that you disagree with and or you might feel slightly differently about and we encourage that that's fine and in fact our sincere hope is that that um this podcast is a catalyst a catalyst for for your own growth and for self-examination and um for really taking a hard look at some of our our own ideas and assumptions and blind spots and you know we're not claiming to have the ultimate truth and uh, concerning uh, Israel and Palestine and but we think it's worth wading into and so we've called this podcast um what did i call it <laughs> the the complex moral minefield of Israel and Palestine because that's what it feels like it's a complex moral ethical religious spiritual minefield and and so it's hard to walk it's hard to walk through but we think it's we think it's worth worth doing anyway we trust that that there is a deeper more mysterious uh presence at work here in our own change, and growth and transformation. And so we hope whatever, whatever we're saying here is it are just a few hints and guesses clues for the right kind of questions even. And we hope you'll, we hope you hear something that will challenge your own worldview and your own frames for the better. So enjoy. Hey Mandy, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hello. Uh
0: yeah, we thought we'd have a another conversation. The first one I think was really much more just about our personal experience and how our time in Israel sort of messed with our our view of the world and I don't know, we we just felt that 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 I mean, where else can you start other than your own personal experience and we thought we'd go a little further with this one, maybe a little deeper in in terms of, well, what questions is this raising now? And um, what kind of moral mind field are we navigating? All of us are navigating here. And maybe like a a part two, but maybe one layer beneath what you're feeling.
1: Yeah, well, I think just as the footage of, The slaughter, you know, that happened on October 7th to Israelis was heartbreaking. The footage, you know, coming out of Gaza of of children um, and innocent civilians being killed is deeply heartbreaking and sickening. And we were watching an interview last week with uh, Pierce Morgan and... The Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson and Pierce Morgan said something to Jordan Peterson he said help help me to think about this how how do we think about this because I'm in I feel I'm in a moral quandary here you know about what's going on and Jordan Peterson said well yeah that's war is in essence there's an unsolvable or at least a A very difficult complex moral quandary otherwise there wouldn't be a war and so I think part of the invitation is to dive in a bit to the complex complexity of what's going on and not that we're experts by any means but maybe we'll have an an, a conversation now maybe diving a bit into the complexities
0: yeah yeah and, and we can do it we all can do it. I mean this is you know James Hollis says a definition of a of an adult is one who can hold greater and greater complexities. I mean you got that from Jung. Greater and greater paradoxes in a way and I don't know we sh- I don't think we should let the complicated nature of it um shut shut us down or turn us away. Like okay, let's let's turn toward it instead and trust that um that we can at least begin the process of even recovering the right kind of questions.
1: Yeah, and it takes courage because, in a lot of ways, this conversation is a war of words, and people are listening for their words, you know, to see where you line up. Are you on my side? Um, are you on their side? Mm. And maybe we could start there. I wonder. There, well, there are a lot of highly charged words and phrases that are being thrown around certainly on social media in the news on college campuses like what everywhere well um i think one of the words maybe we could explore is is occupier i saw some footage of cnn of you know a younger person you know probably in their 20s Um, looking at those signs that were put up of the kidnapped Israelis, 30 of of whom are children. So the top of the title of the poster says kidnapped and they were taking sort of stickers to place over top of the posters that said occupier, almost as if to say that the kidnapping of children and... um, people is justified in a way because because they're the, occupiers yeah, because they're occupiers mm-hmm. so do you believe well what would you say about that word do you believe that israel is an occupier
0: um yeah okay this is really hard to answer without historical context. And it's, that's even hard to know where to start. I mean, do you want to start with, um, King David? Do you want to start with the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Romans, the Greeks, um, the Byzantines? Probably not.
1: (laughs) Well, I do think the history is important, but if we give people the benefit of the doubt, if we You know, if we resist saying they're idiots, they're stupid, they don't know history, if we're giving this young person the benefit of the doubt, what does she mean? Okay. Your best guess when she's taking putting that label on this kidnapped child, occupier.
0: Okay, benefit of the doubt, the frame that's being used is oppressor and oppressed, or oppressor and victim. And they, they look at the world and say, well, Israel has... Clearly, more military and political power, and is connected to the West, meaning America, really, who has way more power militarily and politically and econo- economically. So, therefore, their presence here is occupying, even spiritually, psychologically. I don't know if people are thinking this far, but I, I mean it. it's more like that than even technically on the ground, the land, although we can have a conversation about the land, but they're an oppressive force, um, and there is always, there is some truth to that. There is, a, there to be a Palestinian in the West Bank, to be a Palestinian in the Gaza Strip, to be a Palestinian in Israel and even have an Israeli citizenship, there is a cloud. There's a cloud uh, um, around you that is more powerful than you. So I think they in one, that's the most generous reading. Okay, these people are the victims of oppression. And because that's pretty much the only popular game in town on college campuses and just in general in, in the really in the kind of like the, a youth, the, the adolescent kind of mindset of our culture right now, that's, that's the game that's most attractive. There's so much potent energy there. So that's a I want to say something about the history there, but I think that's like psychologically why you would erase kidnapped with occupied or occupier. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know.
1: Well, maybe, maybe say something about the history now too. When, when we were living there in, I believe it was 2005 or was it six? I remember that the Israelis withdrew from Gaza.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, this, uh, I guess a, a, a drive-through version of history is worth it at this, right at this moment. So I think it's important to remember that before the British and French were involved in this part of the world, it was the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire was a Muslim Empire, mm-hmm. but not an Arab Empire. That's like, you have to keep that in mind. The Ottomans were not Arabs. And there was a lot of tension, actually, between Ottomans and, and Arabs. The, what's left of the Ottoman Empire is Turkey today. So, mm-hmm. and if you were to call a Turkish person an Arab, that would be an insult, Mm-hmm. So, there's a lot of animosity between the Arab world and the Ottoman world. So, during this time period, like say in Jerusalem and in Gaza, in, in, in Ramallah, in, in um, Samaria, all these towns that show up on the news today, they were under Ottoman rule. Mostly Arabs were living in that time period. So, they were under kind of the oppression of the Ottomans. And a lot of Palestinians, they wouldn't have necessarily called themselves that at the time, um, did not do so well. Okay. And there were also Jews, all during the Arab- Ottoman Empire, during in, in this part of the world. There were synagogues in Gaza. People people forget this, mm-hmm. just like there were synagogues in Egypt and, 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 and in Jerusalem. And But we're talking about a pretty small percentage of the population, maybe 10%. I'm not being too careful, but it's somewhere around that. Um, so just as a reminder, the Ottoman Empire, a lot of Arabs living in pretty small towns. These are very small towns. Also... Some Jews, they never left the land of Israel during this whole period. So the Ottoman Empire falls after World War I, and the French and the British um, decide, more or less, with the support of the UN, that they're going to divide up this part of the world into possibly future states. They didn't. were very careful not to use that language at first, but the aim toward a kind of self-rule. And we'll help you get there. And they they made promises to the Arabs. They said, if you'll help us fight the Ottomans, we'll give you some autonomy. We'll we'll let you rule your little mini kingdoms, more or less.
1: Is this what's known as the British Mandate? Yeah. Okay.
0: That's what's coming. So then the UN basically gives it a stamp of approval. And, you know, roughly around 1918, somewhere, maybe a little bit before, the British are in charge of this area. And and they call it Palestine. and, And they... They took that essentially from the Romans. The Romans renamed Judea Plishtinia, or Palestine. It was kind of an insult because it was a reference to the Philistines, who were the historic enemies of the Jews. So they tried to drive the Jews all out. This is in 135 AD. This is
1: the Romans. Romans. Mm -hmm.
0: Romans tried to drive all the Jews out. Didn't really work. But they tried to erase the memory of them by calling Jerusalem Alia Capitolina, just capital, whatever, and um, sort of the capital of the area and rename it Plishtynia, Palestine. And so the British, I mean, they weren't necessarily playing the same game because that name sort of stuck around in various forms over the, over the centuries. And they say, because this is Palestine, they acknowledge it was mostly Arab, but under the British mandate, they started issuing these decrees, like the Balfour Declaration and its various versions, which said something like the Jews more or less have the right to self-rule, and um, the language is very, very careful, but doesn't promise them a state, but says they have um, they should live in freedom and autonomy here and have some self-rule, and they promise the same thing to the Arabs. Mm-hmm. So both groups of people were kind of hanging on to these British promises, and the French made their own promises to Syria, Lebanon, other places in, in, in the Middle East. Um,
1: Roughly what year was this?
0: Well, okay, so the British Mandate lasts from 19—well, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, 1913, 15, somewhere in there, um, up until 1947. Okay. So that's, that's the end of the British Mandate, and the British actually handed it back over the UN, and they're like, you deal with this.
1: In 47.
0: Yeah. And the UN, this is so—people p- don't know this, um, but the very first offering of a Palestinian state was in 1947. They said to the Arabs, okay, the Jews self-declared their statehood, and that's what pissed everybody off. Mm-hmm. They said, we're not even going to wait for the UN. We're a state. We're a Zionist state. We can talk about that word of another charged word. But, mm-hmm. um, and, and okay, and, and the UN accepted their borders, and they they promised the Arabs a state at the same time in 1947. And they said, no, because we can't live next to a Jewish state. We don't want a Jewish state. And it should be. And that was really the beginning of a sort of wave that the the problem that I would not say the British and the French created, but helped create. This mm-hmm. is, again, playing with that word occupier or colonist, which mm-hmm. comes later because, you know, the British had colonies and things like this. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, with the with the push of the British, even though that technically the British got cold feet right at the end and pulled way back and said it should be an Arab state. People also forget that. Um, anyway, I'm getting a little bit too much into the weeds right now. Um, but but the Palestinians, so to speak, said no. And the entire Arab world, which was starting to form states all over the place, Jordan, Syria, also said, we don't like it.
1: Did they say no in 47 because the the borders of the state that they were offered was not acceptable to them yes Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and and also and this is where palestinians have a legitimate claim that once israel declared their statehood Mm -hmm. they whoever was in the borders was the state of israel which how would you feel if you were an arab who lived in a village for sometimes hundreds of years, your family, and now suddenly you're in the state of Israel. Are you a second-class citizen? How is that going to be worked out? What if you were kicked out of your home, which did happen? Mm -hmm. Um, It happened because of war, basically. So the day Israel said, we're a state, all the Arab surrounding countries now invaded. Mm -hmm. So... Arabs and that lost was their homes. The first war for independence. That was the first war for indif- independence. What the Arabs call the catastrophe, or the. Um, I don't know why I can not remember the Arabic word. That anyone who's listening will know what I'm talking about if they know the Arab word, but the mm-hmm. catastrophe in mm-hmm. Arabic. And so many, many Palestinians had to flee their homes. And they thought it's just a matter of time. It's ridiculous, this tiny little country of Jews. And I want to say who was living there because there are a lot of misconceptions, Um, they're just going to be wiped off the map, and it didn't work. And uh, with the help of America, other places, but it didn't work. And so the Israelis said, and this is their first um, thorn in the flesh of the Palestinians, you can't come back to this village. Right. And they did it all over the place. They said, you fought us. Sorry, you lost the war. They kicked them out. They kicked them out.
1: Yeah. Mm.
0: And, And we're talking about quite a number of people, too. Not not tens of thousands of people, but in the thousands, people lost their their ancestral homes going way back. I, you can't say way back to the time when Israel was there, but going back many generations. That's fair. Yeah,
1: yeah. I remember. So part of your tour, we visit a shop in Bethlehem, um, and the owner's name is Johnny. And he asked us, we were living in Abutur at the time. And um, he said, "Where are you living? You know, in, in Jerusalem, we were telling him a neighborhood. He said, oh, my family lived there for many, many years. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't go back. I can't, I can't visit there.'
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And people in the Middle East um, have long memories. Mm-hmm. And even the fact that we lived in Abu Tor, like Abu is such an interesting neighborhood. It's the only mixed Arab." Jewish neighborhood in all of, in all of Jerusalem
1: it was at the time is that still true
0: it I'm sure it's still true and when I mean mixed I mean house to house and and you can actually see you could I could drive around the street the neighborhood well we didn't have a car ride my scooter around and point out Arab home new Israeli build new Israeli build new Israeli build Arab home and when I say Arab home I mean one that was you know two 200 years old something like the hundred mm-hmm. years 200 years old mm-hmm. um okay one one more. Piece about um who was living there what's what most people okay this also influences things like colonizers because now it's getting mixed with race um especially in the, the critical academic college campus world where um colonizer means white and so many people like really stupidly think jews are white Because they look, some of them look white here in America. So they're like, oh, these are the white colonizing European Jews coming into Arab lands. When in fact, most of the people living in the land of Israel during the Ottoman Empire and before, long before, um, they even called them, the British even called them Arab Jews because they looked Arab. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about ancestors or um, roots in places like Yemen, Yemen. Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, in the modern day Jordan, Jews live for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. A lot of them, their mother tongue was Arabic, and they also mm-hmm. spoke Hebrew, but they're, they're not white colonizers. They lived there all during this time period. It's just the influx of Jews coming from Europe influenced this idea, like these are people who were really fleeing pogroms and other forms of social, political, and, and real life-threatening oppression from Europe started to come over all during the British Mandate. Huge mm-hmm. explosion of, of Jews, mostly from Europe.
1: Well, that brings me to another kind of highly charged word that you hear also thrown around a lot, which and that's the word apartheid. What can you say about that word, the history of that word, and do you think that Israel is an apartheid state?
0: Well, I have to feign some uh, well, I have to admit my ignorance because I don't know much about South South Africa. But I know the word is like just means apart or s-
1: Dutch South African, Yeah, it's right? Dutch South that African counts. word. Yeah,
0: and so it means separated out. Now, um and someone would be able to to answer more than me, this is where I should have done some research ahead of time had I known you were going to ask about this word, but um, it's not a one-to-one comparison. That I know for sure. But if it communicates symbolically that Palestinians are second-class citizens, well, there is some truth to that, Mm -hmm. Um, that they don't have... If you're... Okay, and now here we get into the weeds. There are two million Arabs that live in, in Israel proper that have Israeli citizenship. They're full citizens. They can vote. They can fly in and out. They have passports. They have representation in the parliament, but they don't have to serve in the IDF. Mm-hmm. And you can see why. Um, now, some chose to, like the Druze people. Mm-hmm. They'll send their kids, they're Arabs, um, many Bedouins. There's a whole unit inside the IDF that are Bedouin.
1: Yeah, aren't Be- the Bedouin tra- trackers yeah, for the, the trackers. IDF? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: yeah. This sounds like an urban legend, but it's not. <laughs> they really are. Um, and so it's like you're—and you're, you are a minority then in the land. If you live in Israel—like we have friends who are from Nazareth. They're a Christian family. They're, their family has lived there for 2,000 years without exaggeration. They're Arab Israelis, but we wouldn't call them fans of the state of Israel. We'd say it's difficult. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Now it gets worse once you're in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Then, then, if you live in the West Bank, did you want to ask a question?
1: Well, I was just going to say. So I hear you saying it's again. If we were to extend the benefit of the doubt, what do they mean by this word? But you know, on the other hand, it's not literally true that Israel only allows Jews to live within. That's right.
0: There aren't these the borders. E- there aren't these ethnicity divides that say this is your ethnicity therefore you don't have this right or you're a separate part of our society It doesn't really work there it's an attempt at a democracy Mm -hmm. um but it's more it gets more complicated when you start thinking about the people who live in the west bank and the Gaza Strip but the west bank is maybe easier to understand the drive-through version is the west bank was the country of Jordan until 1967 so if I lived in Ramallah if I lived in Uh, part of Jerusalem. Um, I was a Jordanian citizen. But even that is in question because the Palestinians were not well-liked by the Jordanian rulers. Um, King Hussein, in fact, he fought wars against Palestinians and tried to capture Yasser Arafat, all this stuff, who fled to Israel. Um, But I was technically in the country of Jordan. That's the better way of saying it. And then in the Six Days War, that all became Israel. And then Jordan signed a peace treaty that that's created the limbo. So Jordan says, I don't want that land back. You deal with the people there. And now, again, you may have lived in the West bank now for hundreds of years. You're not an Israeli citizen. You can't vote. You're under the Israeli shekel. You can't come and go easily. Although Israel does, um, there's a whole permit process for coming and going. Um, and, You have representation, you have Palestinian authority representation, but you're still under military control from the Israelis. They control your borders, and that's Mm -hmm. why people love the word occupation. They're occupied by the military, but it's just because it's not a state, and it's uh, because of the peace treaty, really you need a new word for what's going on, at least in my view. I don't have one. I can't offer one right now, but it, it doesn't quite fit the mold. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite fit the mold of, of an apartheid state. And I think you have to be very, very careful. Here's my biggest problem with using that word. It's just sucking up something that, you know, every U2 fan is going to love. Yeah, like against apartheid, you know, like Desmond Tutu, you know, freedom for African-Americans must just be like what's happening over there. And I think it's just too simple and kind of an, a gross analogy.
1: And also, isn't is it not the conflation of, kind of the race problem, you know, that that we have in the United States, uh, the emphasis on race, the emphasis on um, white colonizer mm-hmm. occupier versus the poor,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Bra- brown, black and brown bodies, yes, yep. that that whole problem that we have in the United States gets put onto. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I think so, and it's kind of an easy one. We 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 prefer the thing about there's some part there's some part of of I don't know if it's our own ego, just our own humanness, you could say, that loves black and white things, mm-hmm. you know, just good bad black white, just as a symbol. You apply that to race, and you know, it's like it becomes easy. Well, who do I identify as the problem? And mm-hmm. I think it is totally unfair and unhelpful in this situation, even mm-hmm. if there are some some kind of like metaphoric or symbolic overlaps.
1: What about this phrase, from the river to the sea? Because this is something that college kids are chanting, Mm -hmm. and our own representative, uh, or Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, just tweeted out something yesterday, uh, saying that from the river to the sea is an aspirational call for freedom, Human rights and peaceful coexistence. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, that's totally naive. Although um, she knows that, first of all,
1: I don't. Does she know that? Yeah, she I mean, knows if we that. were to give her the benefit of the doubt, does she know the history of that phrase? Of course she
0: does. And okay, that's not to say. Okay, I'll, I'll try to take the benefit of because this phrase really bothers me. Obviously, I'm, I'll get fired up here. Um, Which
1: phrase? The river to the yes, sea. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah.
0: River to the sea, um, because phrases can change even meanings can change just because it started somewhere doesn't mean it has to stay there if what she's saying is true in that tweet then in some ways yes free like i mean I, I my opinion palestinians are suffering and part of their suffering comes from the fact that they have such they they don't have a state they don't have a sense of autonomy they don't have a sense of safety they don't have a government that works it's totally corrupt Mm-hmm. both the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. This is suffering, big-time suffering, plus you have um, Israelis around you that are afraid mm-hmm. and have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a problem. And, yeah, I think um, I want self-reported. Read it again, just the, the little...
1: Oh, she said, From the river to the sea is an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence. Yeah,
0: I wish, I wish. The phrase is really... Uh, much older now. I, I'm not going to pretend that I know the exact day that etymology was born, but it does come out of this whole Muslim Brotherhood movement, which gave birth to Hamas and Fatah and um, many other Jewish or I mean, excuse me, many other Palestinian militant groups. But it is a literal. I think you said this on the last podcast. It's a little reference to the from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean that this should be Arab land. And why should it be Arab land? Because Muhammad conquered it in, in the 600s AD. That's why. And Islam was a religion just like um, um, really the, the, the first um, image that it may be as helpful is the Greek Empire. So the Greek Empire wasn't so much of a religion, but... Um, just spread around the world as kind of let's, let's conquer the entire world and rule it. And once they see the beauty of Greek society, everyone will become Greek. Well, the Muslims did the same thing. They said, boom, out into the world they went. You cannot say Christianity started that way. It didn't. It took many years before it started its own military campaign. Um, but anyway, it becomes the Arab lands in 600. That's when the Dome of the Rock is built, by the way, and the Alaska Mosque. Um, which is on the the site of the Temple Mount, of of the Jewish temple. Right. That's a historical fact. You'd be really dumb to deny that. Um, But anyway, this idea of a single um, Arab um, control over all of the original lands that Muhammad conquered became an apocalyptic um, longing for one day we will go back to this. And instead of all these wars back and forth and who controls this and Western people coming in and whatever. um, So the river to the sea is really much more connected to that ideological dream. And that means no infidels. And that's the fundamentalist reading of that river to the sea. No Jews, no Westerners, no collaborators. That's why, I mean, this is terrible. I hate to bring up more atrocities, but... You know the the Israeli government just keeps re- releasing bits and pieces of footage from that day on October seven. I mean, they they took Arab bus drivers out of their buses and just shot them. And they're saying, "I'm Arab, I'm Arab, I'm Arab." Like, we don't care. You you're a collaborator. You're an infidel.
1: Yeah, you work for the infidel. Yes, mm-hmm.
0: and so that this kind of um, and that is technically a kind of ethnic cleansing. That that is what a genocide is like. Anyone who's not one of us, who has the wrong race, um, uh, and or even cooperates with the wrong, let's wipe them out. So from the river to the sea, push them into the sea is the other way of saying it, is taken quite literally. That's why I think it's a dangerous phrase.
1: Do you think the college kids, you know, kids the same ages as our kids, do you think they know what they're saying? Or, um Do you think it's sort of, forgive them, they don't know what they're talking about? There probably is that element. But I guess, deeper than that, what do you think is so compelling to someone, you know, in their 20s to sort of align themselves with this narrative, with this story? Mm. What's going on kind of on the psycho-spiritual level that is so compelling?
0: Okay. Now this is... uh, I'll just speak... Try to speak freely here, and I'm, I wouldn't say this is a super well-thought-out ar- ar- argument. I, maybe there's some weaknesses here, but I think the place to start is actually with with the absence of religion. So um, re- religion has provide, provided frames of morality and frames of values for hundreds of years, whether you like it or not, thousands of years. And... What's happening more and more is all of these systems of values and ideas and morals have been slowly torn to shreds, saying, hey, look, there are contradictions here. You claim this, but you act like this, basic hypocrisy. And, and, and I think there has been a movement, an intellectual movement, that um, all over Europe and America for, for who knows, a hundred years or more, that has basically thought that we're moving toward a more secular, liberal, really inclusive uh, world, and we can leave behind all these superstitious, superstitions and value systems. Okay. Now, Jung also said, deep in, in, the, in the very heart of every human being is the religious instinct. And it's as, it's as alive as sex, food, shelter. And that is that craving for meaning. So if you tear everything down and say, there was no meaning in here ever to begin with, you're left in a kind of void. This is my opinion. You're left in a kind of void like, you can't get rid of the instinct toward meaning. It's like, yeah, but what the hell is meaningful? And the, the major frame that has been offered to, to the world that I'm describing is there's only one frame, and that's frame of power. And how do we know where it is? We look for who's oppressed and who's the victim. And if you combine that with religious fervor for meaning, where is meaning, then you end up saying, okay, if there's oppressor and victim, oppressor is evil, which is religious in its conclusion, and victim is innocent. Victim is righteous. And and the way to set the world to rights again is to get rid of the oppressor. And, and you could say, well, well, there's a lot of truth to that. Don't you want to get rid of oppression? Who, who would deny that? Like no one's going to the streets and saying, let's go oppressors, let's go oppressors. No one's going to do that. It, it seems it's attractive to find someone to blame and then to tear them down. And, you know, and Hamas is doing the same thing. We're the victims. They're the oppressor. And the oppressor doesn't have the right to live. So I think maybe just to maybe make one more comment about that. I think there's really a holy trinity. You have oppressor, victim, and hero. And I think this is a benefit of the doubt, really. I think most people who want to take to the streets want to be the hero in that triad. And the hero sides with the victim. And 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 that's attractive and that makes you feel righteous and it makes you feel part of the pure and, and part of um, moving history forward and things like this. So Um, the problem is that I just don't think it works. And I think you need Jung and a deep look at human nature to know profoundly that oppressor, victim does not work in the end. It doesn't work. You cannot divide people up like this. This is why, I mean, shadow work 101 is what I see in the other is in me. Mm -hmm. And who wants to say that right now? You know, what I see them doing is what I'm doing. This is the great irony of someone at Harvard. These are the most privileged. I don't care what their skin color is or their background. These are the most privileged kids on earth siding with so-called victims, you know, and they they have no idea what it's, many of them, what it's even like to be a victim in the first place. But they've taken the, the posture of, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but I'm aligning with who's righteous in this scenario. And therefore, the ends justify the means, you know, something like that.
1: So are you saying that this gives them a system of meaning that they can sort of attach themselves to, align themselves with? This is what gives them identity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, if I, if I pull it way back and say, ha, ha, have I ever done this? Yes, I have. You know, even when I first started to... Um, open my mind to the possibility that, hey, within the Christian frame, maybe gay people can be accepted, all right? The motivation was to turn re- religion itself and my own fundamentalist upbringing into the oppressor, and I'm going to align myself with the victim here, and I'm going to speak on behalf of the victim, and I'm going to argue the victim's case. So it's like I'm not saying that that is in and of itself, like somehow immoral or or unethical or or the wrong frame, it's just too simple. Mm -hmm. And because what ends up happening is then, well, let's burn the whole house down because of the, the sins of the past. Let's burn the whole house down. And then what? And any student of history will tell you, without exception, the victim becomes the oppressor. That's the way it works. And I don't know. It's like, so you want to challenge the frame. That's kind of what I'm saying. You want to challenge the frame of meaning and say, this cannot be the only frame in town that makes sense.
1: That's sort of my my instinct. It's too simplistic. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's kind of ironic, too, that those many of these students might describe themselves as non-binary on the, let's say, on the gender Mm. and sexuality scale. But it is very much a binary. The only game in town is victim and oppressor. Yeah. And those are the glasses that I wear and you either fit into one or two categories and there's very little nuance, very little complexity, very little understanding.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know where like I don't know. Uh you remember that I this is probably the 80s, but remember when all those like um uh musicians got together and saying we are we are the world, is that, is that oh, the yeah. one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I think what's that's like old-fashioned liberalism. That's the way I see that. Like in the end skin color doesn't matter. In the end ethnicity doesn't matter. In the end religion doesn't matter. We have a common humanity. We can both celebrate our differences and find threads that are deeply human and the same. And that is now laughed out of the park. Like like that is let's drive that into the sea. Um, And all we're doing is talking about divisions and separateness and you can't possibly understand me and I can't possibly understand you. And you mix that with a kind of fundamentalism about who's right and who's wrong. It's 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 pretty bad. It's a pretty Mm -hmm. bad situation to be in.
1: Do you have any. I mean, when we look at the complexity and the difficulties of what's going on, do you have any hope that it will end in a positive way?
0: Well, yeah, I think we have um, some responsibility to continue to be hopeful about the world. The world can change it, just like the world changed in in a second on on October 7. um, You know, I don't know. I'm not really sure exactly how to answer that. But I do have a bias, and and it's because of um, sort of, I guess, my bias toward Toward what Jung would say, that the process of real change in the world has to start on the individual level, not on the societal level, and a lot of people would not agree with me. They say, well, actually, we need all of our energy on the sy- the systems. That's why I like a word like systemic, mm-hmm. and and I'm not against those things. Like, look, there are systemic problems in the world. the The structures are are problematic, but oftentimes what people th- think, if they think at all, is that if we change the system everything will be fine, but it really does not solve the individual problem. And, and so like, if I, if I pull this back down to the personal level, all of us are pulled toward conformity. Like I am too, I'm not above conformity. Like as soon as something like this comes, like choose a side, Israel, Palestine, it's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I need to conform to the right group. And I think and, and Jung talks a ton, tons about conformity, and he says the path toward adulthood is to break those ties and to go in on the individual level and say, I am also mixed up. I am a mixture of good and evil. I'm capable of these kinds of heinous acts. I'm capable of being wrong. I'm capable of 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 doing real evil in the world, and I'm capable of light and goodness and hope and meaning. And when you can start to really look into the, I don't know, into the, the light and darkness of, of your own human individual condition, condition, I think it changes the way you see the world. I think that's part of the individuation process, I guess.
1: And so you would say your hope <laughs> is still tied to... Why are you laughing?
0: I'm laughing because, because you're like, well, you sort of got sidetracked. So you're <laughs> saying what now? No. that's. <laughs> Go ahead. Finish.
1: No, I was trying to find what your hope is, that your hope is perhaps on the individual level. It is. My still. hope's on the individual
0: level. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, part of the call is to call that out collectively. I mean, you have to ring the bell in public and say, take a look inside your human heart here. And I just believe, I mean, that's what, I got that straight from Jesus. What's the beginning of his movement? Repent. Mm-hmm. That means, well, in Greek, it means change your mind. And in Hebrew, it means go the other direction. And I still believe, I'm, I'm super old fashioned, I believe in repentance. Mm-hmm. And even with something like this, I've had to take a look at my own ideas, like do I need to repent from something? Have I been willfully blind here? Have I been too biased? Have I been prone to jump on some bandwagon because I I, I think it'll make me look better? I can remember that literally hundreds of times people have asked me about Israel and Palestine on my trips back home. And most of the time I take the 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 easy way out.
1: Which is what?
0: It's complicated, you yeah. know we don't have what, what do you want to sit down with me for the next four days you know that is that that is a lack of moral courage on my part to even say what I think not that I'm right but to put that out is to begin the conversation what do what do I think about this where are my own weaknesses and, and my own ideas Thank God that I have Palestinian friends and Israeli friends I mean that is a gift We moved to Israel and started going to a church and were introduced to a very um, surprising community. We got to meet, and where we live, we got to meet Jews, we got to meet Palestinians, we got to meet Muslims, we got to meet Christians, we got to meet Druze, we got, and the list goes on and on. What it, but instead of saying, well, it's just too complicated, what the hell can you do? For me, I, I, like part of my own repentance is, okay, it's, um, let's look harder. Let's look harder instead of sort of hiding behind things.
1: And let's try to have conversations, however, imperfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a risk. It takes a lot of courage to put even what you're wrestling with out there because you do feel like you'll be attacked and torn to shreds. But I think the courage is to put it out there anyway.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I, I, I'm just remembering now from, from the last podcast that I didn't say also came from Esther Perel. I don't remember how she led up to it, but she was sort of saying, be careful not to, to generalize, to conflate. um, to be ahistorical for the sake of memification that's the word i thought was interesting and Mm. i feel myself like i just want the meme you know throw it up like 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 um you know changing the flag on your profile picture to ukraine or something just signal 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 give me the meme and and i'm sorry but from the river to the sea is that's that can be memified and that we ought to resist you know Where are the signs, for example, that say, we want Palestine to be free from Hamas? Like, because that is, it's not the only issue, but it's pretty close to the core of the issue of for those in Gaza. They live in hell under Hamas. And yeah, free, free Palestine from Hamas and from this ongoing um, uh, pitted, ideological and religious battle between Islamic fundamentalism and the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we should, I long for freedom from that. But then you have to, it requires you to get in the weeds, you know.
1: Do you think there is any hope for the Palestinians to have a state at this point? Like, because the Abraham Accords seemed really hopeful. Um, The most hope I think a lot of people have had in many, many years. Uh, Do you think this has utterly just blown the Abraham Accords apart? Do you think there's any hope that they may go forward? Not that you can know. I just wonder, like, what your instinct is.
0: Well, on October 8th, I probably said this to you. This is the worst possible thing that could happen to the Palestinian people. It is the absolute worst, what Hamas did. Because you and I knew from the incursions that happened when we were there, mm-hmm. you know, that all hell is going to break loose. And, um, and it, and I felt like almost overcome with, with a kind of darkness. Like there actually is no hope here for mm-hmm. a two state solution. Or I always thought a three state solution. Mm-hmm. Gaza and West Bank are so different that mm-hmm. they probably should be treated that way. Um. But I, I kind of back down from that. Again, like, oh, here's a great line from Jung. Um, people don't have ideas. Ideas have people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's what ideological possession is. And we're all susceptible to it. And so I can sometimes get susceptible to kind of apocalyptic fantasies of my own. Like, I'll criticize Hamas and their apocalyptic fantasies. But because I'm attracted to, it's all going to burn you know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I could feel that rising up, but I, I feel um, less hopeless now if, in fact, the Arab world starts to turn—I mean, if most of the Arab world does not want Islamic fundamentalism blowing the world up, blowing their own economies up, blowing up any opportunity for exchange and trade and freedom of travel, and, and they want their kids to be able to go to school anywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I— part of me hopes that in the wake of this, the Arab world will, will say enough of this. I think that will that will have a much greater effect than any America or Israel trying to, quote, eliminate Hamas. That That's not really going to happen. We have to be honest. They might eliminate their capacities to shoot missiles and so forth, but it's an ideological position. And it's very hard to eliminate unless it starts to happen from within. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that, that that may happen. I'm, I'm hopeful that The Palestinians in the West Bank, though they're being, I mean, probably most people don't know this, but there have been nightly incursions by the the IDF trying to go after Hamas and other terror groups inside the West Bank. So it's very dangerous to be in the West Bank right now. It's probably Mm -hmm. just not on the news. Um, But my hope is that internally there'll be a, I don't know, a change of leadership, of position. We can no longer just demand we want everything. And I don't know. So I don't... I'm not sure, other than it's like a flare goes up into the night sky, and there's like a flash of light, like, oh, okay, here's a little clearer picture of what's going on, and then you can maybe start navigating down a different alley. I'm hopeful for that, and I think it's possible.
1: What do you think about, one of our kids uh, said, can't the Israelis just go, like, send special forces in like why do they have to bomb the crap out of whatever the hospitals Um, and there's there's an element uh, well first of all I think this war is being gopro'd and live streamed on people's phones and there's a there's also AI involved and it's hard to know what's true and the true things that you're seeing are so deeply disturbing. What do you think this is doing to our psyches to to watch kind of live streamed GoPro, you know, acts of terror and war?
0: I don't know. It's not good. You know, it, I guess part of me wants to say, well, what's wrong with real-time unfolding of events? But I know you've posed the problem of AI, too. And, you know, I can think of dozens of examples that I saw on Twitter. Like, look, here are Palestinians standing in line for bread. Turns out it was an old shot of, of, of Palestinians in Syria. You know, like wrong country, wrong time, wrong place. Syria is a whole other problem. Like, where, where's where been the entire world after a half a million people, civilians have died in Syria over the last 10 years, you know? Yeah, and many and of them Palestinians.
1: No one demonstrated for no, that.
0: No, um, But anyway, that's like one of those, like, where were you? When, <laughs> um, but I, I don't know what it's doing to our psyches. I know that the possibility for, um, I don't know, real moral wrestling, real philosophical wrestling starts to evaporate in in a culture of reactivity, like constant reactivity, this after this, after this, after this, more, more and more moral outrage, whether it's around something that's real or not. Um, like when the Israelis, quote, bombed a hospital and it went on the New York Times and, and turns out it wasn't the Israelis. Now, people might
1: not even believe that now. But- I don't think they do. There's still... Uh, debate online, you know whether where that even came from.
0: Well, that's that's partly the answer to your question. What does it do to the psyches? It it feeds confirmation bias. That's mm-hmm. what it does. It's like if I've already decided everything that is Israeli is wrong, then that's all I'm going to see, and and or if I've decided the other way around, every single thing that the Palestinians say or do is wrong. I'm just going to trust the IDF, or what? It's just confirmation bias. So. It definitely feeds that I mean our phones feed they don't challenge us you'd think it would because think about Twitter it's like a series of provocative things that you put out there that are supposed to challenge other people but it almost has the opposite effect it just confirms my bias
1: so if part of the deep problem we're in is that what we see is confirmed so how we see it is how we see anything is how we see everything That's that's a Richard Rohr line but if the only game in town is the victim oppressor narrative that's all we see and we see it everywhere mm. if if the only game yeah i don't how do we see i
0: don't know Repet- how do we Repet- see then
1: how do we cleanse how do we clean the lens of perception
0: yeah, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I think um, in some ways, it, this is, again, me positive reading, because when I was actually in graduate school, we were also starting the process of deconstructing history. That's basically what graduate school is. And you start to see, oh, the point of view of those who won wars is the dominant, that's what won the war, like or you could say the worldview is what won the war. And part of the deconstruction of history is to say, okay, that what is, is not the only only narrative. and we should be listening to groups that were conquered or groups that um, were abused or sidelined or marginalized and all the, all the fancy words. Um, it's, so I, I'm saying something positive about the necessity for that. And then maybe one step beyond that would, would look something like, I, that has to happen inside my own psyche. I have to find ways that I've behaved like the oppressor or behaved like the victim. Um, I have to see the own complexity of my own moral landscape if I'm going to understand history and if I'm going to understand the complexity of how any of us got here and if I'm going to look forward into the future um, without such a blind adherence to who's right and who's wrong and I'm going to make sure I'm on that particular side. I know that's not like, these are kind of more psychological and spiritual nuances, so it's hard to know how that plays out. Um, But I don't know, like, I don't know. I can't can't really think of anything other than Jesus' call to repent, to start cleaning your own lens. If you've been marching in the streets with free, free Palestine, okay, I'm not here to shame you. I'm saying, all right, really look here. Really look. Um and and same with if if I think the the Israelis are God's chosen people and they have and and that Arabs should be cleansed from the land, it's time to really look. It's mm-hmm. time to really look at, at how um immoral, blind, one-sided and myopic this worldview is. Mm-hmm. And I think we can hope for that. We can hope for that. And, you know, Israel in some ways is, is an experiment internally. Like, there are always little—there's stuff that, that never makes it onto the news. There are schools that have Israeli kids, Jewish kids, and Palestinian kids in the same classroom. I mean, our, we have friends that, that, that send their kids to a school where they're, they speak Hebrew and Arabic. Mm-hmm. You know, these are, these are seeds of um of truth that that can grow into uh, some sort of shady acacia tree in the desert in the future and um but i think the kind of black and white us versus them is a way of chopping down all the the trees you know something Mm -hmm. like that
1: i keep thinking about this theme of not being able to see very clearly and uh, you brought up jesus So I'm, I was also thinking about blindness, and doesn't Jesus, isn't that his number one sort of healing miracle? Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's like, that's the, the major, I don't know, symbolic content of the healings. It's really about not being able to see, even his disciples can't see all that well. Remember that crazy story where he's arguing with his disciples, and they're confused, and they're like, he's they they think he's mad because they don't have bread on the boat, and there's all this like infighting, and they land on the shore, and there's a blind man, and and Jesus heals him and asks him, can you see? And he says, I see trees, walking around, and then he like has to make he has to like try again, make make some more mud or whatever, and put on the man's eyes, and then he can see. And then, and then Jesus starts talking to the disciples and they still don't get it. It's, it's, it's an image.
1: That's a really mysterious passage because it's like he tries to heal the man and it it half works. Yeah,
0: it half works. Maybe that's a story of what, what healing is like, that it takes time. You don't read one tweet or one sign and then you see, it's like you half see for a while and you kind of get it and you kind of don't get it and, um, and and meanwhile, you're confused in the middle of that process. You're like, I see trees, they're like people. So it's like, I don't know. In some ways, that's a really encouraging story, that hmm. the nature of transformation and change is a bit slow, and, and it's humbling. I mean, at least that's the way that, the way that I take it. And, and I think you could just add to that idea that Jesus seems to be interested, maybe above all else, in kind of seeing clearly. Like the way things are and how you think the world works, he's trying to help remove the blinders in some way. Mm-hmm. That that maybe that is in part the major image of salvation or transformation in the New Testament is seeing clearly and I mean even comes right out and says it like rem- remove the log from your own eye so that you can see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Yeah. You know, I don't know.
1: I'm also thinking of Howard Thurman because we're we're in a book group right now with the Dominican Center. We're reading his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which is such an interesting book to be reading right now. His central question or thesis is, does the religion of Jesus have anything to offer people whose backs are against the wall?
0: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) First of all, that phrase, backs against the wall, just in our group discussion has, you know, sort of poked the bear here mm-hmm. around the question of victim oppressor. And, I, th- you know, I I'm not speaking for everyone here, but it, it became kind of easy to say, oh, I see the people who have their backs against the wall are the people in Gaza.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and there's no doubt that that's true.
0: It's 100% true. If you are in Gaza right now and you're a civilian, your back is against the wall. Israel is part of what has pushed you there, but so is Hamas, and so is the the way that the entire globe has used them as pawns. All kinds of things. Their back is against the wall, but I think it's it. But it's not so straightforward because the Israelis also feel like their back is against the wall when they're afraid to send their kids to school on buses, um, when they're afraid of random acts of terrorism at any moment for the last seventy years, and. Um, and they also are afraid of their neighbors. Like, oftentimes we forget that, yes, they're in a conflict with militant Palestinian groups, but they're afraid of Iran. Uh, they're they're larger, they feel like their backs are against the wall from from a very hostile Arab world that surrounds them on all of their borders. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, it's like, it still begs the question, does the religion or the way of Jesus or the questions of Jesus have anything to offer? Really, two groups. We don't need to get into a competition of who's been more victimized. Both can claim and have experienced real trauma, real wounds, and been real victims of real things, and, and both feel pinned into a kind of corner and are reacting from that place. And I don't know. Anyway, but the book is sort of saying, I don't know. Does does the relig- re- whatever the religion of Jesus? That's what he calls it. Have anything to say in this kind of situation? So,
1: anyway, yeah. were
0: you thinking of something specific?
1: Well, yeah, there's a chapter that we just finished called Deception, and he sort of argues that this is a primary kind of coping strategy of people who who feel threatened, whose whose lives are in danger, who are traumatized. They engage in deception. It's, it's an in, as an instinct. Mm-hmm. And at the end of this chapter on deception, he has kind of this call that I'm really, I really feel challenged by, uh, to radical sincerity. And he says, there must always be the confidence that the effect of truthfulness can be realized in the mind of the oppressor, as well as the oppressed. There is no substitute for such a faith.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, yeah, and think how little sincerity there is right now floating around. And a- and actually, like, there's there's pessimism that even telling the truth is not worth it. I'd rather engage in a series of lies to accomplish some perceived greater good than to trust, I don't know, in sort of the simple act of telling the truth as as best we can, holding a kind of thread of humility.
1: Yeah, and... Howard Thurman says that if you can have the courage to tell the truth with sincerity, that it cracks this frame of victim oppressor. He says, instead of a relation between the weak and the strong, there's merely a relationship between human beings. A man is a man, no more, no less. The awareness of this fact marks the supreme moment of human dignity.
0: Yeah. I can't think of a, a more powerful call here to end, I don't know, and I guess to end this conversation, but to call us towards something radical and beautiful here in the midst of a lot of pain.